We can talk in a moment about whether Chris Isaac there sounds as if he has a social phobia. Today in the trials of modern life, that's what we're talking about. When the fear stops you going out and meeting people and enjoying their company. The shyness that people find so crippling and how does it reveal itself? Is it a terrible chill some people feel when they have to even ask a stranger for directions or a salesperson about what items might be on special or where the change rooms are? We know many of us would rather walk over hot coals and stand up in front of a group of people and talk. And many of us feel we've got no capacity for small talk anyway and become increasingly isolated and trapped by that self-doubt. Today, Carol Kerr is my co-host and clinical psychologist, Dr. Peter McAvoy. We hope are going to help and coax and tease out your stories and concerns. Good morning to both of you. Good morning, Jeff. Now, um... Almost by definition, I reckon this is a hard one for those of you who do struggle to interact and communicate, but we would like to hear from you if you've tackled these kind of fears and got past them, and because that's what this is about. How were you able to get past them? Give us a call on one three hundred triple two seven twenty. 222720 Carol, firstly, why is this area of interest here, the social phobia? It's a... a Area of interest mainly because I ran into Peter through um, some work I was doing um, a few weeks ago and we started talking about social phobia and social anxiety. And Jeff, I didn't realise it could be so debilitating. Um, I think we all suffer shyness to some degree. I think we all suffer an element of panic attacks to some degree, depending on what, what situation we're in. But uh, talking to Peter, I was actually quite taken aback by how it can really dictate how people live their lives and not just going out socially, but the kind of careers they choose, the kind of life they lead, where yeah. they live, who they who they mix with, and, and whether they actually can function, um, I guess, what we would term normally. Yeah. Uh, Peter, and I, I guess second question is when does shyness become anxiety, become a social phobia? But how do we define what a social phobia is? Well, the core feature of social phobia is the fear that, that someone will be criticised or humiliated in public. And that might be when they're being observed or scrutinised in some way, so when giving presentations or certainly uh, uh, job interviews would be a very common situation in which people would feel social anxiety. And, and most of us would admit to experiencing social anxiety in some situations. But social phobia is a very debilitating fear of being criticised or humiliated. Uh, and it varies from some people in, in very specific situations, but some people most social situations they find themselves in, whether they're being scrutinised or, or observed or whether they're just interacting with people. Mm. And when it starts to debilitate them in some important area of their life so that they can't progress in their career, uh, they can't initiate or maintain conversations, let alone relationships, uh, or pursue what, what is important to them in life, uh, their life can become very, very restricted. And other problems can, can ensue as people withdraw as a consequence. They can get very depressed, for, for instance. They might start to rely on, on substances to, to help them uh, help lubricate mm. uh, social interaction. So it can, can compound the problem. Mm. Well, it was funny. Before I had kids, um, someone said to me, um, if your child's outgoing, that's fine, because you can always kind of pull them back. But if your child is shy and anxious, that's really difficult. Do you agree that it's much harder to, to bring a person out from that corner than it is to tell someone to just rein it in a bit? Yeah. What we know is that, that our temperament early in life uh, can 
places at a greater risk of developing an anxiety disorder. So young children who tend to be more inhibited or don't really like novelty or novel situations, that they're a bit afraid of them, may be at an increased risk of developing an anxiety disorder like social phobia. But most kids who, who are a bit anxious in childhood will grow out of that over yeah. time. So we need to be a bit careful yeah. not to pathologise uh, fairly normal levels of anxiety in childhood. But it do, does certainly increase the risk of developing an anxiety disorder later on but there are effective treatments available for those who do. It's interesting Peter because uh, I was having a bit of a read through some material on this and it was saying that some of the things like tantrums, tears, clinging, sane little hesitant interacting with other kids um, potentially could be signs from early on that your child has got some social phobias but for me as a parent especially watching a lot of other children happens all the time <laughs> it's quite normal so so we don't want to scare people in thinking that their little darling is going to have a social phobia but obviously as a society it alarmed me when we talked about it. Are we aware of it and do we know how to deal with this? That's a really good good point. I, I, I don't think we speak about it enough. Anxiety disorders in general, but, but certainly social phobia. And it's not the sort of person that you go to, a problem you go to a party about and, and say to the person next to you, hey, I've got social phobia, how about you? Oh, yes, so do I. And, and you can have a conversation about yeah. it. It just doesn't it happen. It doesn't happen, no. Um, so certainly with the, the, the group treatment programs that we run, often it's the first opportunity people have to meet someone else and speak openly about their problem uh, and and so I guess coming back to your point about being being not being overly concerned if, if children are showing some signs early in life uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll develop a problem but may place them at a greater risk so it may be important to keep an eye on. Dr Peter McAvoy specialist clinical psychologist is our guest Carol Kerr is with me we're talking on the trials of modern life about social phobias that, that thing that grips you, that stops you being able to do some of the things that you want. And if you're up for it, we want to hear your story, if you've tackled it and beaten it, or, or whether you... I don't, want to, I don't want you to be suffering in silence anyway, but that's not very good for Talkback Radio either. one three hundred triple two seven twenty. 222 Just a few questions. When you go out into a social situation, do you feel very uncomfortable? Do you struggle for small talk? Do you worry that the first words that come out of your mouth are going to be misinterpreted. And I've heard things of, of people who try and deal with this by practising the conversations they might have. If that sounded like you, we're not judging you. We're just keen to know what your world is like. one three hundred triple two seven twenty. And we know a lot of people who are in this situation, Carol. We do know a lot of people in the situation and some of them quite famous people as well that we, that, uh, that we may not realise. People in high-profile situations. I mean, Donny Osmond was a classic case of he su suffered social phobia and he wouldn't go to shopping centres because he was so worried that people would actually come up and start abusing him and criticising him. And he struggled on stage with his performances. Um, Barbara Streisand was another one. I mean, she... she didn't sing in public for 27 years because she forgot the words of a song once at, in a concert in Central Park in New York and uh, it threw her into years and years of anxiety and panic attacks. Susie O'Neill, the mm. um, you know famous Australian swimmer, in her early days she talked about how she, she almost hoped she wouldn't win a race because the thought of having to stand on a dais in front of people or be picked in a team because she'd have to actually socialise with other people on that team. We, we have friends, Jeff, who are media people who have no problem in, in chasing a con man down the street and sticking a microphone in front of their face and, hit, and going about the daily business of those hard news stories, but ask them to stand up in front of an audience and talk about anything, even themselves, and the sweats come, the panic comes, the heart starts racing, 
and they basically cannot do it. They will say no. So, Peter, where does that terror come from? If so many of us are gripped by it from time to time. Look, I mean, we're not entirely sure what causes a social phobia, but, but certainly the gene and environment interaction is important, it seems. Um, the more family members you have with anxiety, the more likely you are to develop an anxiety disorder. We talked a bit about temperament before. If, if you have a, more of an anxious temperament, you might be more likely. But there are also a number of environmental contributors. Um, a lot of the people we see, for example, uh, in our groups or, or individually, will complain of uh, having experiences of being bullied, for instance, in, in adolescence. Uh, seems to be quite a, a critical period, um, or even later in life in, in work settings. They may have had some sort of humiliating experiences which may have triggered that vulnerability, if you like. Um, we also know a little bit about some parenting styles that may increase the likelihood. Go on, yeah. um, sometimes if, if parents tend to be overly critical or uh, reluctant to provide positive feedback to children or if there's an overemphasis of making a good impression or of other people's opinions, that may also increase the risk. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's people who've grown up and feel like they're living in a world of judgment all the time. Does it come and go, Peter? Is it something that comes with for a little while and then goes or is it something that once it's triggered at whatever age, it's with you forever? Yeah. Um, the research shows that social anxiety can hang around for a long time if people don't get effective treatment um, and uh, start doing things a little bit differently to help, to help the problem. Uh, but certainly a lot of patients that I see say that it does wax and wane over time, depending upon the circumstances in their life. If, for instance, if they're able to avoid a lot of judgment or, or perceived judgment, mm. then things might go quite swimmingly. Uh, if they're able to do their work via the internet, for instance, or use uh, technology, uh, that doesn't mean they have to see people face to face. It, it might might now, be okay. Now I wonder also if it's a modern condition by virtue of the fact that we can live a more private life than we've ever lived before. If I don't much like interacting, I don't have to. My friends can be Facebook friends that are numbers and names and words on a, on, on a screen. Um, does that worry you to some extent? That there's does that offer escapism or is it a useful way of getting back into communicating. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not certain whether this, the changes in technology over the last 10, 15 years have increased the, the prevalence of social phobia, but it certainly accommodates uh, avoidance of social situations, if you like, for people who may be suffering. It makes it easier, really, to hide it, I suppose, doesn't it? I mean, I, I find even... on. It, catch a bus these days or a train you don't actually need to even make eye contact with people you don't need to say hello to anyone anymore because they've got ipods in their ears or they've got game boys in their hands or there's so much technology that we don't say hello we don't get forced to have to interact so is that feeding this problem my guess is that it is. I mean, we don't even have to walk down the hallway and, and speak to a colleague. We can yeah. send all our questions via email. Uh, and and it, it, again, helps us to avoid actually running the risk of face-to-face -face rejection. It's 26 minutes past 11. Peter McAvoy is here. He's a clinical psychologist. We're talking about social phobias with Carol Kerr. And we'd like to hear your experiences either as parent or child and, and how you dealt with some of them. Judy, good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to say about my son, who's now in his um, early 20s. He showed signs of this from, uh, he's the youngest of five. Um, you know, there's only seven and a half years between all my children. But so, you know, we were a really very happy family. But right from a very small infant, he would not socially interact with basically anybody. If we go to friends' houses, he would 
either not get out of the car or if he got out of the car, he would cling on to me and bury his head into my shoulder. This went on through school. He would not go to playgroups. He would not go to um, schools. I used to have to bribe him to go to school. I used to have to get him from under his bunk to um, actually get him to go to school. Um, he would not join in any sports whatsoever because somebody might look at him. Yeah, that's a big strain on you as a parent too, Judy, isn't it? Um, it, it, it was just heartbreaking. And, you know, all through his life he's gone through this and um, nobody else can see it because when he does go out, he'll drink, take drugs, and he'll put down this bravado and this totally different character if he has to actually go out somewhere. Um, he will only... Um, interact with his very close friends and and nothing else. Trying to get him a job was really hard. Um, my kids all worked at a fast food company yeah. and you know, his older sister got him into working there but she had to actually go and fill out the forms for him. She had to take him to the interview and she had to basically be there when he started work. Certainly, certainly very common um, that, that I hear a lot of my practice that, that people do suffer in, in precisely the way you're describing your son does uh, from very early in, in life and, and later on they might actually outwardly appear okay to most people through, either through the use of drugs or alcohol or they might, as you say, put on this false bravado but, but inside it's like they're dangling from the uh, narrows bridge by their ankles. They're, they're terrified. They're absolutely petrified. They've, they've got all the symptoms of, uh, of, of a high level of anxiety and distress and they're, they're uh, acutely uh, concerned about, about that negative evaluation. Judy, how do you assess your son now? And I, do you know a phrase came into my mind and it's the kind of thing that people would say innocently perhaps getting it quite wrong, is kind of, why can't you just be yourself? It's, it's something I think we say to people. Do you, do you worry that your son's not sure who he is? Um, or how do you see his future? Put it that way. His future is that he's, you know, with, with encouragement and with his close friends and things, he has actually got out there, he's actually got jobs and things, but he won't do anything outside of those, you know, and it's very, very difficult to get that. When he does go to work, you know, every job he's had, he's a, um, an apprentice, not an apprentice, he's a, a welder. Um, he didn't, he was actually, we had to sort of basically encourage him to go through and do his apprenticeship. The, the important point, I think, is that, that effective treatments are available for sociophobia, and it's a real shame that we're not capturing them earlier in, in people's yeah. lives. A, because people aren't aware that they're suffering from a diagnosable condition, they're not aware uh, where to find treatment, and they're not aware that effective treatments are available. So I'd certainly encourage your son to, to, to look for, for help. Oh, he doesn't realise he's even got this problem. I think that's part of the part of the problem, though, isn't it, Pete? I mean, firstly, as as a I guess a treatable diagnosis. Really, it's only been the last twenty years or so that we've actually recognised, even in your business, that there is such a problem as social phobia. But secondly, that that the people who are dealing with this, they know they're not being rational. Is that true? But they really 
it, whatever it is that's feeling is overriding that rational thinking. Absolutely right. By definition, people with sociophobia, when they're outside of the situation, uh, they're away from it, they can look back and recognise that their reaction was out of proportion with, with the actual situation. But in the situation, that they're panicking, they're petrified. Judy, thank you for your call. one three hundred triple two seven twenty. 222 If you've got a situation like Judy's, and, uh, and Peter can offer some words, um, why not take the opportunity? One three hundred triple two seven twenty. Good morning to you, Morris. Yes, good morning, Jeff. How are you, Morris? Uh, yeah, not bad. It's a very interesting subject. Um, I don't know if I can offer anything. Anyway, let me relate uh, what happened to me. Um, as uh, oh. a kid, uh, around about fourteen, fifteen, I was quite a promising uh, cricket player, and I played for the borough and got a trial for North West London schoolboys at a very prestigious ground called Parliament Hill Fields. Um, I was the only kid there with a, a white, shirt, cricket boot, white shirt, cricket boots, and grey flannels. All the other boys were from uh, grammar schools. They spoke slightly different to me, and uh, they all had immaculate whites. And I played the lousiest game of cricket I ever played because I think we'd been conditioned to regard those people as better than us. And uh, I think that I carried that uh, for a long time. I mean, I'm 70 now, so it don't matter. Yeah. But uh, I carried that for a long time through my life. And even when I got called up to go into the uh, British Army, even if a, an officer spoke socially to me, I was absolutely tongue-tied. Now, you know... Uh, from previous calls that I've made to you that I'm not a person that's usually lost for words. Morris, I, I have to say you're always a welcome visitor to this program and you are not a man I would expect to ring up and talk about an early experience when, one, you were lost for words and, two, you were so anxious about what others might think of you. And it reminds me of a young fellow we've got coming through at the moment who, who plays sport very well in, in a soccer team. He's at university. He's able to get through uh, that by avoiding contributing to tutorials, but he describes going back to the locker room after a game, uh, after performing pretty well in the game, and almost vomiting every time he goes back to the change room. So that uh, unstructured social interaction really And that was because really he had terrifying. to actually then mix with the people he was playing with. Exactly. In exactly. a social environment. I wonder too, in terms of just, um, Judy touched on it with her son, but the actual impact on your career prospects, because obviously, um, well, a friend of mine's son is going through university at the moment. He actually chose his university degree based on how little one-on-one -on -one presentations or lecture time he might have to take part in. And also, what is it going to mean for him at the end of that when he graduates? Is He picked a job that basically he can hide in a room with a computer for the rest of his life if he wants to. Not necessarily his first choice in career, yeah. but what... But he, Looking ahead, he could see that was the best way of being able to deal with this problem. So I'm just wondering, in terms of career prospects, we talked about the job interview. Everyone hates job interviews. Mm -hmm. But imagine feeling, I imagine, ten times worse when you, every on a day, daily basis. Every day is like when, a job interview. Yeah, every day is like a job interview. Absolutely. It would be very easy to dismiss this as a, as a, as a minor problem or something that, that we all experience if it wasn't just so debilitating. And the number of people that I've seen who, as you point out, every decision in their life is, is dictated to by this anxiety. Um, whether they finish school, what course they do if they do go, go uh, to TAFE or to, to university, um, and, and certainly their job prospects after, after that. So, Peter... Let's talk about the, the, the process by which people can come and get 
assistance? How do they get to someone like you in the first place? And is it because someone's dragged them along and said, do you know what, yeah, actually, this actually is a problem, it's debilitating now, but it's going to get a lot worse and life is going to be difficult unless you deal with it? I, I hear that, uh, that, that people have been dragged along quite rarely. O often people eventually find out about the problem via the internet, for instance. They'll do their own research, come to the conclusion that there's a problem, then they'll go to their GP and say, I've got this problem, where can I get help? Yeah. So the first important point, I think, is for people to educate themselves. Uh, and our website is one, one opportunity to do that. that I'll, I'll give that now, www.cci.health. .wa.gov.au, CCI stands for the Centre for Clinical Interventions. Uh, and there's some resources there for consumers uh, called Shy No Longer. gives people a lot of information about, about uh, social phobia and how it can be treated and some self-help materials. There are some very good self-help books as well uh, to help people to overcome shyness and social phobia. Um, and we at CCI run group treatment programs. It sounds a bit counterintuitive to run yeah. group treatment for people with social phobia, but it uh, has a lot of benefits for people yeah. with social phobia. Is that also that thing that says, I am not alone, consequently it's okay for me to stand or sit next to someone else who's feeling exactly the same thing? Absolutely, and even though people who suffer from social anxiety come to the to the, the groups, they, I think they often expect people in the group to have two heads or something, that, yeah. and, and they come along and they say, wow, all these people look so normal. They look so calm on the outside. Let's hear the story of a fellow who didn't realise he was living with this kind of condition and, and congratulations to you Mark, I reckon it's great that you want to come on and talk about it. Good morning. Yeah, I just uh, I, I just found out in the last four weeks that I, uh, I suffered from the problem. I uh, found out by accident, actually uh, was given some heart medication uh, which uh, overcame the problem. Okay, now first and foremost, what kind of job are you in Mark? Oh, well, right now I'm driving a truck, but uh, for 16 years I was a car salesman. <laughs> no, okay, and we'll all laugh and we'll say, gee, by, by definition, Mark's got to be a, an outgoing kind of fellow. Um, what was the reality for you, Mark? Oh, look, uh, I, I suppose the car selling wasn't the hard part. Um, it was uh, large groups of people. Um, it was one-on-ones uh, were okay, but um, I think it's just... Uh, Socially talking, I felt uh, anxiety all the time. I uh, uh, would often turn to alcohol and uh, didn't turn to drugs, thankfully. But alcohol was bad enough. Uh, I cut that out about 10 years ago. Um, I uh, just been battling through it. It sort of exacerbated a little heart problem that I had. And um, just recently went to a specialist and said, look, try this. And then found out that uh, another problem was fixed. And it was uh, the anxiety problem, which was... Uh, which is amazing. It's uh, turned my life around, you know. Mark, do you, did you actively choose to change from the car salesman job into a truck driver because you wanted that isolation, yep. you felt more comfortable in it, and that was a way of dealing with this? Yes, I did, yeah. It, it's, it's lowered the anxiety levels and certainly uh, uh, not living from day to day about what was going to happen next in my, uh, my income situation, you know. Yeah. Um, does it seem strange to you now? Do you Can you put into words what it was that made you feel anxious or, or what the essence of that anxiety was? Oh, look, exactly what you were talking about. Uh, you're talking about uh, uh, saying something that uh, you might get ridiculed for. Uh, if, most people that knew me saw me as a, a very outgoing person and, uh, in fact, it was totally the opposite. And uh, inside I just felt so bound up. I... I had a 21st birthday party for my daughter and uh, I did the most embarrassing thing. I walked away 
from a speech. And I couldn't, I was just so full of anxiety, you know. And did that eat you up for a long time, Mark? Because oh, isn't, isn't that a lot of the problem where you overanalyze your performance? Oh, so, totally. I was, I was a mess. Inside, I was a mess. I, uh, you, you mentioned Barbara Streisand forgetting her words in a song. Well, uh, you imagine walking away from a speech on, on your daughter's 21st birthday party. It was like a... It was horrible. It's one of the big problems with sociophobia as well. It's it's not only restricted to the situation itself. Often there there are weeks of anticipatory anxiety, worry in advance of the situation, extreme anxiety in the situation, and then beating yourself over the head afterwards as you ruminate about what went wrong, what you should have done, could have done better. There are quite a lot of um, of quite common social situations, I guess, that that you've talked about, Peter, that that um, where people go to work on a daily basis or deal with this in their, in their own way, things that we perhaps wouldn't even think would be a difficult thing to do, but f- for some people it's, it's very hard. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a gentleman that, that has recently come through our treatment program who's a professional, and, and he describes uh, using alcohol for the last 20 years of his life. He, he met his partner while he was drinking alcohol and believed that she only liked him because of the alcohol, not because of himself, mm. um, and work in terms of uh, functioning on a day-to-day basis would, would take a bit of a nip of scotch before any important meetings in order to get through. Uh, another fellow who... Uh, finally got to tape after 10 years of putting it off and procrastinating. Um, he, he was going to do a course in, to be a librarian. Uh, in the first couple of weeks, needed to find the library and felt so concerned about being criticised for not knowing where it was that he, he just walked off the campus and never returned. And the more you talk about it, the more people like Mark tell you their stories that remind you how real it is. Robin, good morning to you. Oh, hi, Jeff. Um, yes, look, I'm ringing regarding my 19-year-old son. Um, about a year ago, a bit, bit more, he was uh, diagnosed with social anxiety disorder in combination with depression and was partly fuelled by the cannabis use, I, I'm pretty sure. But he, he was, after some sessions with um, a therapist, he was put on a drug called Lexapro, which I understand is prescribed mainly for that condition. And he was on that for about six months, but for whatever reason, he wanted to come off it. And since then, he's sort of crashed fairly badly. He was certainly better while he was on that drug. But he's now at a very low point where I think it's it's the two things combined, depression and social anxiety disorder. Yeah. He's at a point now where he simply won't seek help. He 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 can't act in any in any sort of way. He can't make a decision at all. And, um, yeah, he's just sort of crippled by the condition at the moment. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what, what to can do. We do. Pretty worried, yeah. Yeah, look, that, that's something we, we hear of all the time, unfortunately. A lot of um, airplay is given to depression. Uh, but for a lot of people, anxiety is a smoking gun for depression. Um, it, it, the withdrawal and, and the distress that it causes can, can lead to depression to the point where, as you describe, people can be, feel very unmotivated and lose hope. Uh, and I guess that's the importance of talking about it on, a, on an occasion like this, just to emphasise that there are effective treatments available. Um, it, it, and, and I guess in, in your son's case, it's, um, it's, I, I encourage you as, as best you can to, to give him that message that there is hope, there are effective treatments available, life can be different, and his GP may be the first, first port of call for, to get help for that. Can you do that, Robin? Can you get him to his GP, do you think? No, at the moment, um, it's extremely difficult 
to talk to him at all <laughs> in any sort of rational way. Yeah. Um, what I would like to know, though, is, um, you know, the, the, I think the person he saw was a little bit too quick to put him on a, you know, a medication approach, and it would be nice to know that, you know, that there are other pro- approaches that are going to be effective other than drugs. Yeah, look, for, for a lot of people, they do find medications very helpful, but there there are effective psychological treatments as well. And, and cognitive behavioural therapy is one type of psychological treatment that, that has been demonstrated to be effective. So I'd, I would encourage you maybe to get on our website as well and, and read up a bit about... Give us that website again. And also yeah. people are requesting telephone numbers. If we can do that, obviously not everyone can access the internet. Sure. The the w- website again is www.cci.health.wa.gov.au, uh, and and it may be worthwhile tracking down the information on the Shy No Longer link, uh, which which provides a lot of information about effective treatments and some of the strategies that we often uh, use for people with social anxiety as a way of of giving your son some hope for that things can be different. Good luck to you, Robin. Peter. A question, I guess, about maybe uh, the triggers, or maybe you talked a little bit earlier about genetics, about the the environments. Are the boxes that we put people in, has research shown that it's more uh, triggered around your teen years? Has research shown that middle-class families uh, are different to maybe lower socioeconomic? Is it more prevalent in one or the other? Is there uh, more prevalence in, uh, I guess, what you would call complete families as opposed to separated families? Is there anything that gives us an indication or can this just affect anyone? Is the answer all of the above? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> all of the above. It's hmm. not, a, not a condition that, that, um, that, that, that is found in one group more than, more than another, really. Um, in terms of my clinical practice, I see people from all, all walks of life, all professions. Uh, so it doesn't just, um, uh, yeah, it, it, we, if anyone can suffer from it. We know that on average it starts in adolescence and points of transition in someone's life. So moving from school to university is a pretty risk, risky period. And also moving from university or TAFE into the workforce, um, moving into new relationships. Those life transitions can be risk, more risky periods. Troy, hello. Yes, how are you going? Good, thanks, Troy. Tell us about your difficulties and good on you for coming on the radio and doing so. Uh, that's okay. Um, I grew up and I just uh, thought I was a fairly shy child, but as I've grown older, um, I've become more conscious of it and uh, it's not diagnosed, but um, I realise as I've got older I've made choices um, unconsciously, but it's been formed around a uh, uh, you know, a phobia of social situations, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I was just uh, wanting to know sort of uh, you know, what direction to take from here, more or less. Um, well, your first stop might be your GP uh, to talk about how you're suffering and, and what treatment options they would suggest. There may be some, some medications that could be helpful, uh, but also psychological treatment. And you might even start with some psychological treatment first and, and see how that goes, depending upon your individual circumstance. Um, also, as I said before, um, finding out as much information as possible uh, in, for yourself in terms of effective treatments and, and seeking uh, a health professional that can provide those effective treatments for you. Um, uh, often, as I, s- I said before, a lot of the people I see said they wish they had have sought treatment 20 years ago, but they just didn't know what the problem was. So you're, you're a step ahead of them, in a yeah, sense. Yeah, well, that's the way I feel at the moment. Uh, anyway, um, I'm getting uh, towards 40, um, 
And, uh, yeah, I just realised now that it's, it's started to um, you know, affect my life. And don't take no for an answer with your GP, Troy, I think. If you, if you, if you feel that uh, you need to take this further with them, get their support on it <coughs> and, um, and get them to, to give you a referral to people like Peter who can help you because, you know, it takes a lot of guts to come on and talk about it and at least you're aware of it and I think that's fantastic. Well done. Hey, Troy, just before you go, I'm just going to read you a text message that's just arrived, okay? Just so you are very clear that this isn't just about people like you who are kind of struggling with these things. This arrived and said, I have had a very similar condition with terrible anxiety my whole life, but I work as a barrister. It's a struggle every day. I avoid interaction with new people and I'm physically ill before I go to court. I think I'm a failure every day but I won't let it beat me and I've got a lot of professional help it's hard and it's lifelong but there are treatments thank you for your program so Troy it doesn't matter who you are and even in our case it doesn't matter if you sit behind microphones it's uh, it's something a lot of people feel and uh, good on you for, for being part of the program. Can I just say we think that around 600,000 Australians suffer from social phobia we could that's more than a third of Perth's population mm. uh, we, we could uh, would meet diagnostic criteria so it is very very common. Okay so go to your GP first then we get to to sessions with people like yourself what kind of benefits are people finding once they start to explore these things and you, you probably convince them not to be frightened of that exploration. Yeah. Look, the, the, the responses really vary. Some people at the end of treatment say, I, I feel like I've got a new life. I can actually make decisions here without anxiety, sitting on my shoulder dictating those for me. Um, some people um, get some benefit, but, but certainly after treatment, if they continue to apply the skills that we teach them, they can expect to continue to improve. Uh, if they've been suffering for a long time, we wouldn't expect it to, to go away uh, you know, within a, within a few weeks or, or a few months, but people can certainly expect to make some progress in treatment and beyond treatment uh, if they continue to apply the skills. Dr Peter McAvoy is a specialist in clinical psychology. We might try and get another number at this stage, um, the website, the cci.health.wa.gov.au is probably the best option, but we'll uh, endeavour to, to look for a number if there is one. Peter, thanks so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. And Carol, as ever, great pleasure having you in. And thanks for, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for shining a bit of a light into the world of social phobias.